Hello, Owlets! I'm PB. I'm CJ. And we're... Gahooligans! We almost timed that right this time. Almost, almost. One day. So we're gonna talk about death. Oh, good. Okay, so first things first. Death. I have a brand new segment. Is it death? No. It is a miles check. Oh, it's a miles check. (laughs) It's a miles check. Yeah, so between our first episode and this episode, we have a dog who lives here now, whose name is Miles, and just... What's Miles up to? Uh, well, right now we're hoping that a peanut butter Kong is going to keep him occupied long enough to record something. And we will see from there. It also means we are recording in a slightly worse room because it's where we can actually look after the dog. So apologies for that. And apologies if you hear licking, slurping, chewing sounds in the background. But just know that there is a very happy little dog here. And the upside is he also really likes owls. Does he? Birds in general. He does like to chase birds. I don't know if he should chase an owl, though. I have a feeling Catherine Lasky's owls would eat this dog. A big owl would. A small owl, he'd be fine. He could eat a small owl. No, Soren could take him. Late book Soren could take our oh, yeah, dog. yeah, but Soren's like a mid-sized to big owl. <laughs> anywho, anywho, anywho. So, today we are discussing the yeah. second half of the capture. Yes. Actually... Can I do a segment first before we get into actually talking about today's reading? Oh, even before we do the summary, do you want to recount anything first? I have just a couple thing questions we asked that I said I would look up the answers to last episode. Oh, good. And okay. I have those answers. So I'm going to put on my research hat and answer a couple questions we had from last week that we asked on the show. We had a question of whether nestmate snakes were real. Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. Really? Um, there are... Plenty of studies that have observed screech owls living with nestmate snakes, or blind snakes. Screech owls, in... which is not what Soren is. No, but you know, it's not so much of a stretch. Um, So yeah, what will happen sometimes is parents will carry back snakes to feed their owlets, but the snakes escape before they get eaten, and <laughs> they live in the nest, and they eat all of the small bugs and the parasites, and they found that actually nests that had blind snakes were had healthier owlets. That More outlets lived to adulthood in nests where there were blind snakes. That makes the relationship between Soren and Miss Plithifer so much darker. Like, this was a snake that the family brought home to be eaten and survived. I think and in the- now she's got a weird owl complex about how noble and great firm poopers are. I think it was pretty clear in the lore of the books that, like, no, this isn't, like, a pred- a failed predatory behavior. This is my Maybe that's how it was now. discovered, but, like, nowadays it is a common thing. Anyway, also, we weren't right about calling it a symbiotic relationship. It's technically a commensalistic relationship, because the owl's lives are improved, while the snake is simply unaffected, rather than being adversely affected. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and had the potential to be adverse, like, that snake was almost eaten, uh, <laughs> so yes, so nestmate snakes based in reality, just probably with a slightly darker reason for why they ended up in this nest in the first place. Glorious. That is going to be amazing when we meet Twilight later. Yes. All right. Um, the other thing we asked about was birds and magnetism. And it turns out there's a lot of interesting research and that's kind of an unanswered question, but plenty of birds seem to navigate Biomagnetic fields and will follow like Earth's magnetic fields. Like that's mm-hmm. how like homing pigeons know how to go, where to go. Is they always have a sense of north because they can always see the magnetic fields. With what? Like so, how are they detecting that? The old theory, and a theory that still is believed by many people today, is that birds 
do like demonstrably have some little bits of magnetic metal in their beaks. So the idea was that birds could feel a teeny tiny little tug in their beak that would tell them what direction was north. That's cool. A more recent theory, according to this one study I found in Scientific American that I will post a link to in the show notes, uh, basically suggests that birds can use quantum effects in their eyes to see magnetic fields. What the spronk does that even mean? Like, see a quantum... What? So it's like birds have a very specific chemical in their eyes that reacts in a way that, like, depends on magnetic fields and can sense very weak magnetic fields, like the Earth's magnetic field. So it would be, like, an additional part of their sight is being able to see magnetic fields as well as, like, colors and light. No one knows whether this is true. It's just a current theory that could be true. I think it's really cool. A bird theory. Mm-hmm. That's still relevant, right? Like, that's yes. still a cultural touchstone we all still have. Uh-huh. And did you ask about owl cannibalism last time, or are we saving that for oh, this Oh, you bet I'm wondering about owl. So, speaking of death. So, let me just say, <laughs> you can Google real quick and see plenty of anecdotes of owls eating other owls. It happens. Sorry. So, you did your research. Um, I also did research, and there's going to be, like, full APA citations in the show notes. I might have gone a little overboard. Heck yeah. I got really excited about owl death, Uh and I did a deep dive into the history of death in children's literature and how mostly adults react to that. Um, Adults do a lot of reacting Uh to kids' stuff in a way that kids just don't most of the time. You don't say. Who could have seen that one coming? Um, So I'm really excited about death today. Uh All right, cool. So before we even dive into, like, the summary of what happens in the back half of Catherine Lasky's The Capture, there are three words for you. Yeah. That you need in order to be able to, like, understand what's going to happen here. So are you ready for... Owl vocab time. Yes, please. Okay. Owl vocab number one. Newing. That is N-E-W-I-N-G. Newing. Um, was that to do with phases of the moon? Yes, it is. Can you elaborate? So that would be when the moon would be close to a new moon, which means it'd be basically almost all the way dark. Right, exactly. So like right before, or it'd probably be right after the moon goes is all the way new and is starting to show us liver again am i right about that right uh, so it seems like the owls mostly refer to the newing as the time when the moon is completely dark and okay. the newing is about to arrive it's the newing of yeah, the moon. yeah 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 word number two doink that is d w e n k doink that's when the moon is reducing mm-hmm. when the moon is getting darker and darker as more and more of it gets shadowed out mm-hmm and when the moon is entirely gone, it is dwinked. Yes. It dwinks and then it news. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, last word, sort of related to these other two and also not related at all, is quank. Q-U-A-N-K. Quank. I have no clue on that one. Is it, does it relate to moon blinking? No. It is arguably worse. 
Oh, is this with the bats? It is with the bats. Ooh. I remember so, the bats. So as we're talking about death and character death, because we're going to get that today as well, um, keep in mind this 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 idea that there is something worse than death. I think that's going to be my argument for the day. Is there are things in Catherine Lasky's world that are worse than death, and quanking is one of them. So, you want a definition of quanking, right? Oh, of course. Would you like all three words in a sentence? Yes. I'm pretty confident I know, but I want to hear the sentence. After the moon has dwanked, and the newing is about to begin, the bats will come to quank. It's an utter nonsense sentence, and I adore it. Yeah, it's just full of nonsense. Anyway... Quanking is letting vampire bats drink your blood? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is a very, um, there's a pretty visceral description uh, in this book. Yeah, I remember it being like a straight out of like a horror movie. It kind of is. Okay, so we're around page 135 here. Um, Soren is trying to describe the feelings of flight to one of the St. Egolius owls who has been well and truly moonlinked. Like, this poor guy is just gone. Um... And has been DNF'd. He's been destined not to fly, which is a big deal to Soren. Yes. And this owl says, oh yeah, no, don't worry about it. Those stirrings of flight, they're going to go away. You're going to feel fine later. And it's all because of the bats. And Soren is like, excuse me, <laughs> what do you mean? And then we get this, um, as they're sleep marching that night, some of the older owls. Look. Gilfie said. Look at what they're doing. Soren and Gilfie both stared in disbelief as hundreds of owls flung themselves flat onto their backs, with their breasts exposed to the sky and their wings spread out. Never, Soren said, have I seen an owl perch that way. It looks as if it might hurt. I don't think it's called perching. Gilfie said. I think it's called lying down. Lying down? Animals do that, not birds, and never owls. Soren hesitated. Not unless they're dead. Death theme number one. Hold on to that. We're going to see so much right. death today. Um, did we want to be attempting to summary? Do you want to attempt to summarize? Sure. Just before we get into the rest of the themes and discussion, I think we should have a brief you know, summary of the back half of this book. Where we left off at the first half, it was we were about to go up to visit Hortense. Mm -hmm. And as a reminder, I have not reread this book. So this is all from memory. And Callie's going to correct me where I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My memory is going to get much, much worse as we go through this series. But in this first, the last half of this first book, mm -hmm. um, we almost managed to make an escape from up where Hortense is, where we have broodies who are owls who sit on stolen eggs to raise into perfect little St. Agolius ponds. Um, but they get caught just like a week or so before they're going to try their escape attempt, something like that. And Hortense, who it turns out has been a deep cover spy this whole time, ends up sacrificing her life to save a couple eggs, but is killed by, like, Jat and Jut, and Auntie too, I want to say. Yes. We get a really, like, gross depiction of auntie with gristle on her beak uh-huh yeah yeah 
And I believe that Hortense falls. And yes. because she is small and, like, never really grew to be a full... Like, she's an adult owl who still kind of has the body of a child owl. Yeah. Which is why is... she was chosen for this yes. job. This is, this is actually a very important statement. Um, Hortense the owl looks like an owlet, but is a full-grown, mature, spoinkin' adult hanging out here trying to do spy activities and does not save these two children she found that are not moonblings. I mean, she's trying to. No, she's not. You're right. She's more focused on the eggs. She's only focused on the eggs. Yep. I remember her being nicer to them than that, but I, I guess you would know better than me. It's also... Well, she's not mean to them exactly, but she's not... She, she is not worried about these two kids in the mm-hmm. middle of this owl concentration camp. Um, She gives them a once-over like, oh yeah, your flight feathers are coming in really nicely. Good luck! <laughs> Uh, and goes back to her eggs, which I get. Like, the eggs are helpless and they're yeah, not yeah. going anywhere. These two kids are already working on saving themselves. Right, right. Uh, but I think the most important thing we need to know about Hortense is why she is truly destined not to fly. Um. So she is from, like, a part of the forest where there are lots of flecks. And there are lots of owls born in that part of the forest, like, in her family and stuff, who are born with either, like... Uh, birth defects or sometimes like other special or different superpowers yeah superpowers <laughs> like sometimes it's a blessing sometimes it's a curse we are told about an owl who can see through solid rock oh Even yeah 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 soren disbelieves that one but like the implication here is that flex do things both to your body good and bad and to your mind yeah it's um, so like an egg who spends its time exposed to flex might give birth to an owl who is you know, it's kind of like getting exposed to radiation in a comic right. book world. Well, and we can we could elaborate on um, Lasky's interpretation of owl disability and uh-huh. how that might translate into our world. I do think Hortense is an interesting depiction, an interesting uh-huh. character, because she's she's far from helpless. Yeah, despite yeah, yeah. not flying well, she did fly her way in here. Uh-huh. She kind of owl parachuted her way in uh-huh. to get here and, and do has these now been doing deeds. an incredibly dangerous job right getting caught right at the end uh-huh but has managed to save like hundreds of eggs mm-hmm. like i believe in later books where she's just like a full folk hero uh actually they talk about that in the later chapters of this book about how yeah, there yeah. Are, are owlets being named hortense after her regardless of gender uh-huh so. anyway moving on hortense falls off a cliff and Dies. Uh-huh. Character death number one. Yes. So, after that failed escape attempt, um, we get the stuff with the uh, quanking, and we start to realize, like, oh no, if we end up DNF, then we are never going to get out of here because they're going to... In they- fact, the next thing that happens, actually, if I remember right, is Soren asks too many questions. Haha, <laughs> yes. And he gets... All of his feathers plucked. Laughter therapy. Laughter therapy, yeah. So, for the record, I went, I like, I'm reading through this book, right? So, I get the descriptions. Yes. Laughter therapy is so traumatic that Catherine Lasky, who writes descriptions of heads turned backwards and blood on talons, will not describe laughter therapy it fades to black as Uh soren begins to fall and be plucked it is that bad and it's just for him asking too many questions right it is for asking a question yes he's in the pelatorium 
he asks a question about, well, what are flax? Oh, that's the question. And yeah. gets plucked bald. And this is like just when his fight, flight feathers are almost like all the way in. So it is a crushing blow to him because like once they can fly, they might be able to escape. And I believe Soren doesn't realize it, but Gilfie's been ready for a while, but she is a yep. good friend and waiting for him. Yep. Yep. So yeah. So everyone turns and just like mechanically laughs at Soren yep. as he is plucked. And then he, we just fade to black. He wakes up in just immense pain. But it turns out to not be as devastating as they thought. Because, like, the feathers they plucked weren't actually, like, his true flight feathers. Which is what Hortense tells him. And this is actually, laughter therapy comes before Hilt, uh, Hortense's death. Oh, oh, okay. And then I she kind of, yeah, she kind of consoles him. Like, oh, yeah, your primaries are coming in really nice. And, like, you're going to be fine. Take some time. Learn uh -huh. to fly. <laughs> yeah. Laughter therapy, the vampire bat, Quang King. Just horrible things happen in St. Aggie's. Like, there's a lot of very dark stuff in the rest of these books, but we really start off strong with the horrors of what can happen to Owlets in this world. And there's one more character slash horrible thing that we have to meet before we can leave St. Aggie's. Yes, so we have the Librarian Owl, right? Yes. Um, so... Do you remember our his other name? ally... Um, I do not remember his name. I remember that he was a... Like... He's worked at St. Aggie's for a long time and it's kind of like hates himself for it and finally sees maybe a way to redeem himself a little bit by secretly teaching Soren and Gilfie to fly yeah, in the library. He is the allegory Nazi who was forced to join the party to save his own family. Uh, but now for Grimble, that is his uh -huh. name, Grimble. Uh, Grimble is a boreal owl who locates his mate by sound uh -huh. and beautiful songs that are unique to them. I don't uh -huh. know if that's a real owl fact or not. I bet it is. I, I bet it is. Uh, but now, after years of working at St. Aggie's and being moon-blinked and moon-scalded and being around these flecks, he cannot recognize his mate. Like, he can stand right in front of them and not even see them anymore. They have hypnotized the existence of his family out of his brain. Mm -hmm. And he's a person who joined St. Aggie's as an adult, right? Yes. Uh, he was. He fiercely well, defended his family against St. Aggie's to protect his owlets. And they were so impressed. They were like, hey, man, join up. Come brainwash other people's children and we won't touch yours. And he said yes. And now he works in the library where they mostly just store all the stuff they pack, they pick from pellets to kind of hoard it. Yep. They don't really they seem don't, to know what they're doing yeah, with it. They they're don't know what to keeping do with it. it. Mm -hmm. Just all the rodent bones and all the flex. And the library is one of like the two places, the other being the broody place, where you can actually see the sky from St. Aggie's because it's all in these deep canyons. So Sora and Gilfi are learning to fly there and they have these flight lessons with him. And we finally get to the point where they're ready to make their escape because Soren, I think, is pretty close to being DNF. And we're getting close to Linux quanking, and, you know, it's a little bit faster than they expected to have to escape. Because, you know, that's how escape plots always go. And so they uh, take off, and just as they start to fly, uh, the St. Aggie's management... Um, shoot, I can't remember who the actual character names. Skinch oh. and Sporn yeah. are the two heads. Skinch? Skinch. Skinch and Sporn, yeah. Bust in, see the owlets taking off. And just brutally kill Grimble. And Soren 
tells himself to not look back, tells himself to not look back, but looks back. Um, or does he not look back? He I don't does remember. not. He does not look back. Gilfie does. Yeah, Gilfie does. And Soren had just has these images in his head of what he heard happening, but he's not sure. Yeah. And one of the only things that actually lets them escape is that for the first time, we actually see uh, Skench and Orsborn, I don't remember if it's both or one of them, wearing metal, like, talon sheaths, which is a common, like, weapon of war we see in the rest of the series, is that they will, like, put on metal spikes over their talons. Am I right about that? Yes. Do they have a specific name for those? Battle claws. Battle claws. And the one who goes in with wearing battle claws, all of a sudden, just gets yanked over to the spot where they store all the flex, because they're magnetic. Which is our, yeah, our, kind of our first real view of that. I actually, uh, that is the passage I marked to read today, if you would love to hear Grimble's death. I would love to hear Grimble's oh, death. Oh, good. Where should I start? Go! This is your chance! Grimble shouted. And indeed it was. Skinch seemed to have been immobilized. Paralyzed. Soren and Gilfi began to pump their wings. They felt themselves rise. You can do it! You believe! Feel it in your gizzard! You are a creature of flight! Fly, my children! Fly! And then there was a terrible shriek, and the night was splattered with blood. Don't look back! Don't look back, Soren! Believe! But this time it was not Grimble calling, it was Gilfi. Just as they reached the stone rim, they felt a curl of warm air, and it was as if vast and gentle wings had reached out of the night and swept them up into the sky. They did not look back. They did not see the torn owl lying on the library floor. They did not hear Grimble as he lay dying, chant in the true voice of a boreal owl, in tones like chimes in the night in ancient owl prayer. I have redeemed myself by giving belief to the wings of the young. Blessed are those who believe, for indeed they shall fly. So I see the look on your face. Oh, just that last bit is just like yes. exactly like a... A Bible quote with like yes. two words changed. Yes. What, what's the name of all of those? It's like from the Sermon on the Mount. I want to oh, say. Oh, jeez, I know. Or it's like, "Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth." There's yeah. A bunch of other Blessed ones are there. the meek. All that. Yeah. And and I feel like Lasky is definitely saying something here with Grimble's character death in particular. Yeah. Yeah. What exactly? I, I mean, I have some arguments to make. <laughs> You've heard I have some arguments to make. Yeah, yeah. You have. You're trying to bring something together. I can tell here about yes death. Give me uh, an hour and an AP style essay, and I will give you a perfect five paragraph argument. I could do it right now. <laughs> well, this podcast is your platform for that. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But we should finish the summary first. Grimble dies. They escape. Uh huh. They're finally out. It really feels like that should be the end of the book. It's but instead, not. we have like five or six more chapters, and we go out and we meet our last two friends, who will be the rest of the. What do they call their group? I, I remember there's a specific name for oh, it. Oh, I think they named themselves in book two. Yeah. Anyway, they meet Twilight, who is a. Uh, He's the symbol of freedom here. Yes. Yeah. He is like. An edgy, independent, teenage, uh, uh, great horned owl. 
I want to be clear, too. This is not, like, the end of the... Like, it's 40 to 60 pages uh-huh. of them being out of St. Aggie's, where it feels like the book should have ended, didn't, we're still going, and we're introducing new characters at the end of the book. Uh-huh. So we meet Twilight. I think... If I remember right, he meets Soren and Gilfie after Soren accidentally lands upside down when trying to land for the first time. Gilfie does. Or Gilfie yes. does. And he helps her figure out how to get herself right. Twilight's special thing is that he can see really well at Twilight, which everyone else really struggles to. Um, and he can see, like, in dark clouds and stuff. Like, he's got really, really good vision. That's his special ability. And then they also meet Digger, who is a uh, burrowing owl who likes to run rather than fly for the most part, because that's what burrowing owls do. And Digger's backstory is that his entire family was eaten by St. Aggie's owls. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but yeah. Oh, it's just so ridiculously dark. It is, it really is. So, yeah, no, we get not descriptions of cannibalism exactly, but we meet Digger and it is very clear that, like, he watched he watched uh-huh. some of his family be eaten. And then ran away. And then ran away. And he's, like, deeply sh- ashamed of that. Oh, absolutely. So, okay, there's one other character, though, that we find. Oh, yeah, we find Miss P. We find Miss P. Wait, where do we find... Or, uh, is that when Soren goes back to his nest? Yes, so they are all running around, going back to their homes, trying to find their parents, and not a single one of them can. Digger, because his have been eaten. Um... Mm-hmm. Twilight, because he never had any. He went to the orphan school of hard knocks, his uh-huh. words. And Gilfie and Soren, their parents are just gone. Uh-huh. And Soren is especially worried about that because his little sister, Eglantine, who was just a teeny little owlet when he fell out of the nest, would probably like not be full grown and ready to be out of the nest yet. Right. And he's pretty sure he's in the right spot. Mm-hmm. He even finds an empty hollow. Yeah. And below that hollow, he finds... Ms. P. Ms. P. Who is very, very upset and basically says that his older brother, Clud, did something terrible mm-hmm. and basically threatened to eat her unless she left the nest. Mm-hmm. And also confirms to Soren a thing he's been denying the entire book, which is that he didn't fall. Clud pushed him. Yes. That is the big reveal of the book, for uh-huh. sure. I think that's the note we end on. No, not even close, in fact. And I I bet you owl money that you cannot remember how this book ends. Does it end with them all agreeing that they're going to go find the Great Gahul Tree together? Well, yes, you've got that bit. Um, but before that happens, we battle Jat, Jut, and some nameless 47-2 owl. Wait, this book ends with a battle? It doesn't quite end with a battle, but the adults that we were under for all of the St. Aggies, you know, uh, 200 pages beforehand, yeah, no, we're going to fight them now. Uh-huh. Um, we catch them uh, after finding Digger, uh, while Digger is denying the death of his entire family. <laughs> oh, yes, and we get to fight the two owls that ate his family. Yes, we do. Do we kill one of them? Um, no. It's pretty unclear, but No. What happens instead, as uh, Twilight is singing his very intense battle song in which hell is a curse word. Hell is an owl curse. 
All right. Um, these are books for 10-year-olds. So what you're saying is we can say whatever the hell we want. Yes, we can. Twilight is singing about sending owls to hell after punching them in the gut and having them wind up on their butt. Um, yeah, no. So as these owls are screaming, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, I'll rip out your eyes, um, the eagles show up. Oh, yeah, the eagles that Hortense worked with. Hortense's eagles. And we end the book on a lecture from the eagles about nobility. Oh, yes, because we have our noble digestive systems. No, no, not that kind of nobility. (laughs) But I'm saying, you know, it's a bit of theme through the book. (laughs) Um, About legends and noble deeds and how those two things go together. And actually, I'm going to read you just a little bit of this. You ready for this? Yes. This, Soren realized in the deepest part of his gizzard, was why they had to go to the great Gahul tree. For when the world one knew began to crumble away bit by bit, when not only your memories, but the memories that others might have had of you, grew dim with time and distance, when, indeed, you began to fade into a nothingness in the minds of the owls you loved best. Well, perhaps that's when legends could become real. And I had to read this part, and here's why. Lay it on me. (laughs) We talked last time about these books being Holocaust allegory. Yeah. Concentration camp allegory, Nazi Mm -hmm. allegory. Mm -hmm. And that line right there, Fading into nothingness in the minds of others. Yeah. That is what happened to the Jewish people, right? Like, Absolutely, The biggest yeah. travesty of the Holocaust, apart from the actual killing, was how many normal everyday people turned their backs, right? Uh-huh. Refused to let people immigrate into their countries or just uh-huh. pretended like nothing was happening. And that's what Soren's talking about. Yeah, like... You read so many books that are like, no one else knew what was happening in, happening in Germany. They absolutely it was, did. But people knew far more yeah. than history books yeah. let on. Yeah. It was very much an intentional denial of, oh, well, I'm sure it's not actually as bad as I've heard. Right, right. And that's Soren's point. And so Lasky's argument here at the very end of the book, the whole drive for the rest of the series, right, is we have to go do noble deeds. We have to go become legend. Because that nothingness, that being forgotten in the minds of others, is the worst thing that can happen. It's worse than death. Like Hortense. And it really mirrors Grimble's story that we got uh-huh. earlier, too, where like he can't see his family, they can't see him. Yeah. He's faded to nothingness in mm-hmm. the minds of others. But with that last sacrificial act of saving those two owls, maybe right. just a little bit, he someone's going himself. to remember him. Right, exactly. That is the core argument I'm going to make today. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, kind of with that in mind, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about death. You've been harping on this the whole time, so yeah, let's talk about death. I'm just so happy. The core question of this book, let me see if I can find the page it happens on. Um, When they're first talking to Grimble early on, Gilfie straight up asks, this is is the theme of the book right Uh here, page 143, Gilfie asks, Grimble... When he says what you're doing could invite a fate much worse than death. Worse than death? Gilfie asked. What could be worse than death? We would rather die. 
<laughs> and then we get two character deaths. Uh-huh. Right? We get Hortense really... Hortense or Hortense? Hortense. 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 I'm in, a lazy American speaker. We get Hortense, who... <laughs> I just did it again. Hortense. Uh, who is pretty viciously murdered yes. by characters who were deceptively sympathetic, right? Auntie takes uh-huh. a big part in that. Um, who was doing a noble deed. Yeah. And then immediately gets remembered. And this very much fits into a depiction of death that was common. You want to take a guess around when it was common? In the 40s? And yes, exactly. And just prior, this uh-huh. very Great War and World War Two era, you know, death as romanticized love and courage. Think um, the Hobbit, right? Uh-huh. I will be remembered through legend and song. People are going to remember my death. Yeah, yeah. That's not the only kind of death there is out there, though. Uh-huh. And I imagine you can figure out a couple of others. Yes, like there is... The heroic deaths that, like, are two, like, main character deaths happen here. And then there's right. the, like, absolute meaningless, horrific death of, like, Digger's family. Right. This death as inevitable. And we see that a lot more. Right. Think Bambi. Uh-huh. Uh, think The Borrowers, where death is just everywhere all the time. Like, there's a yeah, billion yeah. things that can eat you. Um, and death is sadistic. Yes. Um, or senseless. Yes. Like, so much of the... Death and harm that St. Aggie's does, you just see that it is, it's for no reason whatsoever, it's feeding the blood machine blood. Right. And we start to see this mentality, do you want to take a guess when we start to see this mentality? Post-war. It is, it's pretty late post-war. But especially like Vietnam, like the 60s and 70s, anti-war movement. Yes, where we start getting books like Sadako Uh and The Outsiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Slaughterhouse yeah. Five. Yes, yes, exactly. Sadako, innocent girl who is a byproduct now of an old war and is dying because of it for a senseless reason. Yeah. Outsiders, yeah. I think if I remember right, begins with our main character having just killed someone is like shaking over it afterwards. And these are children's books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Sorry, Vonnegut probably isn't a children's book. No, no, it is not. So in the 1970s, 80s, maybe kind of 90s too, though we're fading out of that, we get a lot of this death is senseless. Uh Uh-huh. And then we kind of get this 90s and 2000s push. And I'm going to argue, you said earlier that Grimble and Hortense's death are romanticized, right? Courageous. Yeah, they're like heroic deaths, you know? I'm going to argue that they're not. I'm going to argue that they are death as atonement. Yes, absolutely. Death as necessary Uh for life. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Like, that fits into my definition of a heroic death. It's just a heroic death for a previously gray character. It's taking this old idea that we've already used in children's books Uh before, and it's transferring it a little bit to fit this more 90s and early 2000s mentality Uh of some people have to die so that others can live. Isn't that noble? Isn't that heroic? And I don't know that I agree that it is. I can think of like three or four characters in Harry Potter that fits that exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, Let's see, the other thing I'm thinking of also in that era is Hunger Games, which I feel is more in the senseless death. Mm-hmm. It's because... kind of, Hunger Games came out much later. Yes. And it's kind of arguing against this. Yeah. Would Hunger death Games more be 
Sorry, would Hunger Games be more 2010s? I want to say it was closer to that, yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, I think this death as necessary for life, death as atonement, starts to come out. And when were these books published? 2002, yep. right? Yep. We are immediately post 9-11 in America at the time. And we have this argument for heroic death. Death is, uh-huh. death is necessary. Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And very much influenced, like, we read these books. Oh, yeah, we 10, yeah. You know? This is what we grew up on. Yeah. This argument. There's a whole generation of children's books out there that this was the main theme. Yeah, right? absolutely. And also, kind of parallel to that, there's a theme, along with that sometimes death is necessary, but also that... Death can atone for just about anything. Yeah. Yes. Like, especially Grimble was party to some absolutely horrible things at St. Aggie's. Yes. And was for many years. And yes, sure, it was for the safety of his family. He was put in a position where he could argue he didn't have another choice. And he is a sympathetic character. Uh Absolutely. So, like, it's understandable how he got there, but that doesn't mean that the things he did weren't completely awful. And... His death kind of wipes the slate clean morally for him Mm -hmm. in the world of the book, at least for Soren and Gilfie. So we have this thematic argument of death inquire with this question that Gilfie asks. Uh What's worse than death, right? Death isn't so bad. Death can be heroic. Uh What's worse than that? And I think that's why we have these, like we started today with vocab words, Uh which are off the wall weird, right? Newing. Dwanking, quanking uh-huh. from the bats. And it's it's all deeply unsettling, uh-huh. in part because these words are invented. They're not words we know. Yeah, They're yeah. unfamiliar. Everything unfamiliar is scary. Uh-huh. I think it's pretty clear the answer to what's worse than death is just blind complacency. Is to just accept your fate, like so many of the owls mm-hmm. around Soren and Gilfie do. And a lot of those owls, like, never got a chance. You know, they were moonblinked too fast. They had some other bad luck. And that is, they were kind of forced into complacency. Right. What's worse than death is why they have to fly. Yes. Because right now, the complacency is to not be what they are. Right. To be beings that are basically not owls. And I think that's why we also get to have Twilight and Digger, and even Miss P in the later half of this book, they've just left, they've got this question, what's worse than death? Now they've got to answer it before the book can end. Uh That's why we get this extended denouement. Yeah, yeah. So so we got, let's see, we got Twilight as this incarnation of freedom and happiness and Uh self-expression, and he's a little uncouth and says the word hell. Yeah, he's from the orphan school of hard knocks. (laughs) But he also knows a lot. Uh Uh-huh. And he's a stand-in for everything you can learn when your existence isn't joyless. Yeah, yeah. Pair that with um, Digger. Yes. What does Digger stand for? Uh, Trauma. (laughs) I mean, maybe a little bit, yeah. Um, They say multiple times throughout the books that, oh, Digger is such a high thinker. What a weird owl. And they make a big deal of his thinkiness. Yeah, yeah, because like he and Gilfi are the problem solvers in the group. And I think we're going to dive into this more too in book two as we really get to dig into Digger. Yes. <laughs> um, 
they're going to say that even more, that he's a weird owl, he's a thinking owl, he's a very philosophical owl. And while Gilfie is a problem solver intelligence, yeah, Tigger's going to be like a moral intelligence. Yeah, yeah. He's an empathetic guy. Mm-hmm. And w- then we have Miss P, who stands in for like the lost innocence, right? The lost past that can never be regained. Uh-huh. A more civilized age. <laughs> I suppose that's very much her attitude. Yeah, absolutely. So, we leave off this book, going to do noble deeds, and going to find the tree of Gahul, going to find a legend. Yeah, the great Gahul tree. The right? great Gahul tree. Yeah, which we've had so many legends about. The thing that saved Sauron and Gilfi from their moon scalding uh, was telling those stories. Now they're going to go and find out if it's real. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that's a... Uh, there's so much in this first book that's like, what, it's 250 pages? Um, less than... Let's see. There's like no filler. 219? There is no filler, but there is um uh-huh. but a there's... whole... But there is, you're right. Index of characters. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is good, we're gonna need that, because it only gets worse. Yeah, yeah. We got some good owl vocab today. Any owl vocab we missed that you oh. want to bring up? Oh, there was so much owl vocab that we missed. It is constant. All right. Any other you want to hit right now before we go to the owl fact corner? Oh, owl fact. No, hit me with that owl fact corner. All right. Welcome to PB's owl fact corner. All right. So just like last week, going to tell you three owl facts. One of them is going to be false. It's your job to tell me which one. Okay. Okay. Today's theme is owl's superior digestive systems. Mm, Excellent. Perfect timing. Wonderful. Is it about cannibalism? No, this is all about gizzards and yarping. Okay, great. All right. So, fact number one. Owls are unique in their digestive systems. Their weak stomach acids and compact intestines can't digest fur or bones in the way that other predatory birds can. That's compounded with the fact that owls often swallow their prey whole rather than piece by piece, and that's why they have gizzards and yarp pellets. Is this all one fact? Yeah, so essentially, like, owls are the only birds that yarp pellets, is the fact. Okay, okay. And I was just explaining why that is. Fact number two. Forming pellets in the gizzard takes several hours. After they form, the pellet moves back to the owl's upper stomach, because the gizzard is kind of like a second stomach below their first stomach, where it waits to be yarped until the owl is ready to hunt and eat again. And owls will only yarp, like, once or twice a day. A regular poo. Yeah, exactly. No constipated owls here. But also they wait until they're about to eat again before they are pellet. So they spend most of their time with a pellet just in their gizzard. Alright, owl fact number three. Owls tend to yarp pellets in the same place, piling below the trees where they roost during the day. This is one of the most reliable signs that you have found in owl's home. That kind of makes sense to me, because that is a thing that a lot of animals will do, Mm -hmm. is... Pee in one place, live in a, you know, have a, a regular pee place. Or like finding piles of like pine cone bits below a tree shows you that there's a squirrel living up there. All right. So which of those facts do you think is false? Well, I think the third one is true. Um, I'm kind of wondering now if owls are not the only birds to yarp pellets. What do you think? I mean, it feels like they should be, but maybe what was the second one again? that owls have two stomachs and they tend to keep their pellet in their gizzard. Rather, their gizzard forms the pellet, the pellet goes back up to their upper stomach, and then they yarp it up right before they're going to eat again. That seems inefficient. 
It does. Also, Catherine Lasky does not, like, she always says they yarp after they eat. So I'm going to say it's number two. It is, in fact, number one, like you thought. Other predatory birds also do yarp pellets, usually a little bit smaller and less compact than other than owls. Like, owls are most Makes notable sense. for it. Makes sense. But we don't really associate hawks or raptor, raptors with pellets. But those factors I described of them having weaker stomach acids and compact intestines and swallowing their prey whole most of the time, those factors are why owl pellets tend to be larger and more recognizable and more iconic of owls. So, owls are not, in fact, the only animals with those superior digestive systems, despite what Miss Blithifer would make you think. So do we have a sign-off for this yet? Ah, let's see. So, couple things. First of all, happy to say that this podcast is now part of the Moonshot Network. Yay! Um, So you'll be hearing a promo for another Moonshot show at the end of this episode. Uh, We're excited to be a part of the network, and... I encourage you to listen to all of their other shows. They're all great. There are even a couple other shows that discuss other children's fiction. Let's see. I want to credit our uh, intro-outro music, which is written by Morgan Jackson. You can find the rest of his music at wedidthetimewarpagain.bandcamp.com. If you have questions, comments, feedback, you can email the show at gahooliganspod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at Hooligans Pod. Um, next time you should read how many chapters of the journey? About half. CJ says about half. <laughs> uh, you'll see it in the show notes in the next episode, so you'll know what reading you want to do if you want to read along with us. Also in the show notes will be the articles and citations that I used for researching about children's books deaths, if you are interested in further knowledge. All right, cool. So now we can sign off. So I've been PB. You still are PB. Well, yes, but I have been for the per- for the course of this episode. I have been CJ. And just remember, listen to your gizzard. Oh, that's a good sign off. That's what we settled on at the end of the last one. I totally forgot. Yeah, listen to your gizzard. Hey, Jane. Hey, Jacqueline. What do you think the most significant YA book series like the 2000s to the 2010s is? Oh, definitely The Hunger Games. Uh, no, no, I mean like... Like, uh, Twilight, Twilight, that's the best No, one. no, I'm talking about the Percy Jackson series by Riordan. Uh, I've not heard of those. If I wanted to listen to a funny podcast about those, what would you suggest? Well, I would recommend Unwise Girls, which you and I host. This is a podcast where we reread, analyze, and frequently joke about the books of the Rick Riordan verse, and we see why people call these the best young adult magical series of the 2000s. And we always take time to declare which characters are canonically, factually, not cis-head, because Rick Riordan is not the boss of us. Listen to Unwise Girls every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, brought to you by the Moonshot Network. And swept them up into the sky. Miles, come on up, bud.
Was my reading just too intense for you? It's too scary. It's so scary. Miles, come here. (gasps) This dog's going to make my editing so much more interesting. Yes, it is. And I want to be clear, too. (laughs) Oh, dog. Oh, dog. Escape dog. In the book, right? Um, no. It actually isn't. Oh, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need, bud? And we've stolen a shoe. (laughs) Pinecone bits below a tree shows you that there's a squirrel living up there. He's biting. He doesn't like squirrels. Oh, we might have some dog barks. Oh, really? Yeah. You know what those half growls are, Callie? What? Grimbles. Grimbles! (laughs) This is all getting put at the end of the episode. (laughs) Now, two minutes of dog sounds.